0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 3, verse 18. And I hope that some of you have the opportunity to read this passage beforehand uh, this week to help prepare yourself for this morning. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and just raise your hand. One of our men will come and bring one to you. We want you to always follow along as we preach directly from his word. Before before we read our passage, uh, let's pray for God's blessing over this God we pray that we that you would show us what wisdom is that you would enlighten us that you would correct us if there's any earthly wisdom that still exists within us that we, that we go to for our answers in life I pray that you do away with it and replace it with the wisdom that which is from above comes directly from you So now we humbly ask for for your teaching, Lord. You teach our hearts. You change our hearts. Just help us to glorify you in all that we do and we say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in James chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, let me read that for us and follow along. It says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth this wisdom is not that which comes down from above but is earthly natural and demonic For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the chapter before this, we we transitioned... If you are here for the last time, we heard from James in chapter 2. The transition was going from James speaking of the importance of faith and works going together. And then the last passage we heard from on a Sunday morning was on uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which is, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for we all stumble many ways. And I pose the possibility that the reason why maybe James is making this transition from faith and works to let not many of us become teachers was because teaching is something that could be easily done without the accompaniment of any works. That there are no works of of righteousness displayed in teaching of itself. That someone could very well be teaching good and proper things, but yet be living completely hypocritical lives outside of that. And so I think we see this danger that James is pointing out, let not many of you become teachers. Because it's a, very, it's a position that people aspire to, especially back in that culture, in the Jewish culture, where really any respected male member of the community could just stand up and teach. If they thought that he was mature or he was popular or well-known or well-respected, then he would, had the opportunity to get up and teach. We saw that in Jesus' day when Jesus stood up and taught in the synagogues. He was respected enough to stand up and teach. And so there's a lot of reasons why someone might aspire to become a teacher. And here James is now giving us this warning, who is really wise and understanding among you? In other words, do not let those who teach, or don't let teaching become the definition of someone that's wise. Just because they are up there teaching, just because they're saying a lot of good things, don't let that be your definition of what wisdom is. But what does it say? It says... By their good behavior and their deeds and their gentleness of wisdom. So now we're making this transition from let not many of you become teachers. But here's what wisdom really should look like. Here's the definition of when you're looking for a wise or mature Christian. Don't look for those who teach to be those necessarily. But look for other things as well. And James is going to go through this list with us now. We see a lot of examples when Jesus called out the Pharisees that they were the religious leaders of the day. In Matthew chapter 23, he spends an entire chapter calling them hypocrites, saying that the reason why they're doing the things they were doing was because they enjoyed the, the seats that they were given, they enjoyed all the glory that went along with being considered a religious leader of that day. And Jesus called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs that are looking nice on the outside, but in fact dead on the inside, which is pretty ironic because the whole time through Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were always trying to label Jesus as being unclean somehow. Whether it was because they picked grain on the Sabbath, or because he was hanging out with sinners and prostitutes, or because he let people, certain people touch him when they were bleeding, or because he touched other people. They were always looking for a way to to label Jesus as being unclean. But here we see Jesus calling them the unclean ones, which would have been a huge insult right to their face, because these were the ones who were supposed to be ritually clean in in, in the eyes of Israel. And Jesus, in fact, called them out as being hypocrites. They look good on the outside, but they are the unclean ones on the inside. So it gives us a little more context of why they hated Jesus so much. Because the very thing that they were accusing Jesus of, Jesus had every ground to accuse them of the exact same thing. And they had zero grounds on accusing Jesus of anything. So this would have been their definition of wisdom. Anyone who is able to stand up and teach and teach the word or read the word or teach at all, they would have already been respected members in the community. Now James is giving us this warning don't let teaching or the ability to teach to be the, the, the definition of what, of what a mature or wise Christian is. So let's get into the first verse. It says, Who is wise among you in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and in the gentleness of wisdom. We have three ways here that, that true wisdom is, should be seen. The first way here is by their good behavior. Literally, that word means really their daily life, their daily living. That as we live our lives as Christians, our lives should be able to be observed by others. Our lives shouldn't be sheltered. They should not be isolated. We should not be living in monasteries or living a a monastery-type life where we're we're completely isolated from the rest of the world. Our daily living is one of the ways that we display our wisdom, is that when we leave the walls of this church— is really for a lot of people is when their daily living begins. Because we kind of put on our Sunday best when we come to church. It's not just our clothing, but how we behave. We put our arguments on hold. We put our screaming on hold. We put our anger issues on hold. We put our sexual immorality on hold. We put a lot of things on hold for church and those that we see at church. But our daily living is what comes when our walls are down. And yes, we still make mistakes when our walls are down, but the whole idea is that as we live our lives daily as Christians, not only should they be observable to others around us, but the way we live daily should be consistent with a repentant attitude. As we continue to sin as Christians, we also have a regular attitude of repentance as we make our mistakes. It's not being hypocritical. It's being repentant. There's a big difference in that. But this idea of let your wisdom and your understanding show by your good behavior is, number one, is your daily living. Is your daily living consistent? Where your people at work or people at home or people around you, they will see your daily living. A lot of times people in church on Sunday mornings, those faces you see on a Sunday morning, uh, unfortunately, don't see the daily living that goes on. Sunday through Saturdays. That's not how it should be. We should all be closer connected in in our fellowship with one another where we are observing each other's daily lives on a closer basis. We should be holding each other accountable. We should be um, talking and seeing each other throughout the week at some point to see how we're doing and to check up and support one another. But realistically, in the church, in any given church, that's not usually the case. We tend to only see a lot of people only on Sundays. So those who are wise and understanding, it better show by their daily living. Not just how they behave at church, or when their walls are up, or when there's someone watching that they're aware of. But through that daily living, it says their deeds should be shown, their good works. You know, James just spent a whole chapter on faith and works, and he's speaking of the same kinds of works. That as you're living daily as a Christian, that's where your good works as a Christian should show up. Not just on Sundays if you volunteer somewhere or you serve in a certain capacity in ministry. But your good works as a Christian should be evident in your daily living. So as you live your life daily, observable to others, that's where your Christian, your fruitful, your obedience, your your fruitful living should be apparent. Your deeds will show in your daily living. And last part that James mentions is in the gentleness of wisdom. This word gentle is the same word meek that Jesus uses when he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And this word meek has this meaning of power under control. It's meaning that you have, as Christians, or as human beings rather, we have every ability to do what we want and say what we want. God has given us the ability to control our words or to have lack of control of our words. He's given us the ability to leave church and to immediately go to sexual immorality or any kind of sin, to immediately go back to things on, uh, uh, at work that we know we shouldn't be a part of or talk about things that we know we shouldn't talk about or watch movies that we shouldn't watch. We have every ability given by God to come to church and then profane his name afterwards. That's the power that God has given us. In just a passage preceding this, it's all about the power of the tongue, how blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. And, And James says this should not be this way, but it happens because God has given us the ability, the power to do and say whatever we want. We can hurt people with our words and our actions, or we can love people with our words and our actions. And so this idea of being meek is that power being under control. And so who were the meek in the Old Testament? Because when Jesus gave that, uh, that teaching on the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, the Jews at that time would have been thinking, who were the meek among our ancestors? A few examples might be. One is, is when Gideon was charged to, to take over, uh, to go, to go in, into battle, he had 32,000 men to go fight with. God gave him a sev- several uh, steps to whittle down his army from 32,000 and he ended up to 300 men. And when they went into battle, they didn't even touch anyone. They just blew a bunch of instruments and made lots of noise and made their enemies defeat one another. That's meekness. They had every power to go in with 32,000 men, but they submitted to the authority of God's word, went in with 300 and trusted that without touching a single person, they would somehow win the battle. And they did. That's power under control. The kind of meekness that God talks about is when we take the power that God has given us, the free will, and we are submitting it under His authority. That's what it means to be meek. Another example would be Joshua and Jericho, when the walls of Jericho fell down. Same idea. Joshua is instructed, you're going to march around, and on the seventh time, the seventh day, you're going to, once again, with instruments, this is more uh, argument for using instruments in worship music, uh, but once again, with instruments, the walls will fall down. When everyone shouts and everyone blows their trumpets, the walls will fall down, and that's when you can overtake everyone. The fact that they did that, and they showed faithfulness in doing it instead of doubting, That was meekness. They were submitting to the authority of God's word. Their actions were guided by the word of God. Last example I'll share is Abraham and Isaac. Pastor Andy's been teaching on this the last couple weeks in terms of the names of God. Abraham was meek when God commanded him to take his son and to sacrifice him, to sacrifice Isaac. And as we know in the story, it doesn't end with Isaac dying. But that when God sees Abraham's faithfulness, his meekness to be submissive to the will of God, God stopped him from actually killing his son. And as Pastor Andy mentioned, that wasn't for God, God didn't learn anything new in that, sta- in that circumstance, it was Abraham who had something new revealed to him, and that was his ability to remain faithful to God under any circumstance. So that's what meek means. That's what it would have meant to the the Jews uh, at that time of what it meant to be meek was that they had a lot of examples of what it means to be meek and submitting to God's authority instead of making their own decisions that they very well could have made. So in the gentleness of wisdom, as we live our lives daily, as our lives are uh, uh, are obviously fruitful in being obedient to the word and our christian living and our good works it's also going to communicate a clear submission to god's authority that what you watch what you listen to the words you say the tone of voice you use with people the things you do in your spare time all those things should be obviously guided by the word of god That as we come up with our reasons or our justifications for doing anything, it should always show that we are submitting ourselves to the authority of God instead of our own authority. Instead of doing things that we think just feel good, we should be doing things because God's word said so. That's what it means to do things in the gentleness of wisdom. It is your power to do whatever you want and say whatever you want. But you are submitting yourself under God's authority. It's power under control. That's how godly wisdom is shown. Through daily living. Our Christian works are showing through our daily living. And it's showing, it's displaying the submission to an authority higher than ourselves. In the next verse, 14. Now we have this understanding of what God, how godly wisdom should be viewed. Now he gives us this warning against those who consider themselves wise or mature. So he's saying, if, if those of you, who, are, who among you is wise in understanding? Well, if you consider yourself wise or mature as a Christian, be careful that there's no selfishness or jealousy in you. We see this in any position of leadership or teaching or fame that oftentimes jealousy and selfishness could be the driving force to that person's success in their eyes because they want what someone else's what someone else has that could drive them to achieving a lot of things and thus putting them on top of everyone else or because they just want more they could just read some motivational quotes that they see online or or they've heard before, and hearing that they could do anything, they just put their mind to it, and they will spend their life achieving everything that they want to get. But our world would call that wisdom. Our world would call that, our culture would call that wisdom, is when you could achieve everything that you set out to achieve and become everything that you want to become or overcome any Uh, Obstacles that you want to overcome, as long as you do those things, our culture, our world would call that wisdom. And then they would be looking for a book to be written on that, on saying, How did you do it? Write a book on it so that we can do that too. And it's called wisdom. But it's driven by jealousy and selfishness. So in this verse 14, it says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Jealousy and selfishness does not exist, does not coexist with godly wisdom. That's the whole idea of of the gentleness of wisdom is when you place yourself under the authority of God's word, you're letting go of your own ambitions, your own selfishness, the things that you're jealous of or coveting. You're letting go of those things as you submit yourself under the word of God or God's authority. So if there's any bitterness or jealousy and that's the driving force. That's what characterizes your, your drive for maturity, your drive for wisdom. And for those who teach, we have plenty of examples of this in the church, sadly enough, that we have a lot of uh, teachers and preachers of God's word who seem on the outside like they are pursuing fame and glory for what they teach. Some red flags you might look for are, are people who always have their face on their book who always have to have them on their book. If you're going to read their book, they want you to know that it's their book, as opposed to it's about Christ. You might look for other red flags, like if they fly private jets everywhere, or they live in in ridiculous mansions, or receive a ridiculous salary from the church. And just because their church is bigger, uh, a lot of times pastors will justify that they get a much bigger salary. And I'm not saying that there's pastors who shouldn't, receive certain salaries. But I think that anyone with discernment and godly wisdom can see through those things, that what is characterizing a person's life, is it them as, just as a teacher, or is it what James is saying, is it their daily living that characterizes their wisdom? Do we claim people to be wise just because we see them on a screen but have no idea how they're living outside that screen? Are we claiming those people to be wise even the way we know nothing about them? things to be careful of. Because many times, even teachers of God's word can fall into the trap of seeking fame and glory for what they're doing. That jealousy and selfishness could be their driving force for achieving what they're trying to achieve. Even teachers of God's word And this is something, once again, going back to chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, right? James wants to give a warning to people that there is a stricter judgment. Not only do your works better, they, they need to back up what you're saying, but don't rely on the fact that you're teaching to be considered wise or mature. The next verse, verse 15, he says plainly, This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly worldly or natural and demonic that can be scary for some people this idea also that this w- that we're lying to ourselves in our hearts is a lot of times you could be deceived by someone who is driven by selfishness or jealousy you can be, de- be deceived by people who they seem like they have good intentions on the outside, but yet on the inside they're driven by jealousy or selfishness. Or someone can be deceiving themselves, like what James says earlier in James says, "Don't uh, for those who claim to uh, uh, be religious but deceive their own hearts." So it's very possible that for people to deceive themselves with jealousy and selfishness. But the key here is that if it's within our hearts, it's not always going to be obvious that someone could very well be very successful at what they do and fool many people and trick many people. Because it's in their heart. It might not always be obvious to those who are observing their life. So we always have to be careful with discernment as we grow close with one another, as we, as we choose who to decide, who are the ones in the faith that we should be looking up to and be admiring, or not necessarily admiring in an idolatrous sense, but who are the ones that you could count on for discipleship? We always have to be aware that jealousy and selfishness come from the heart. It's not always going to be obvious. So the next part, earthly, this kind of wisdom is not from above, but it's earthly. In other words, it's worldly. It's sinful. It's focused on self-preservation. The wisdom that we get from the world is very limited. It, it, without God, the wisdom that we have in the world just tells us how to preserve ourselves, how to make my life better, how to get more, how to have a better understanding of things, how to, how to achieve more. It's very uh, a self-driven kind of wisdom. So this kind of wisdom that's not from above is earthly. The next part, one of the examples that we might use for this is karma. There is a lot of professing Christians that still believe in karma, by the way. I'd like to put that to an end. Or this idea that the universe will somehow even everything out. If you do good, then good will happen to you. If you do bad, bad will happen to you. Somehow the universe knows that what you're doing at any given time, and so somehow the universe will just make everything even out. This is an earthly wisdom. It's, it's self-preserving. It's, uh, its motivations are for the person who believes it. It, it. They're just thinking, okay, how do I have a better life? I better treat people well so they'll treat me well back. Or I better not do bad things or people might be mean to me. Or so I might break a leg when I, when I don't expect it or something. That removes... The doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That, you're tr- that th- those who believe in karma or this universalistic idea that the universe will pay you back for everything is trying to put the control in their hands. As long as I do good, then the universe has to do good things for me. It's taking, trying to take the control out of God's hands and trying to place control in your own hands. This is earthly wisdom wisdom that is not from above that is not godly it's devoid of truth the next uh example or, or the next description of this earthly wisdom is is natural it is natural we are born with a sinful nature and it, it comes naturally to us to do what we want it comes naturally to be jealous it comes naturally to us to be selfish and to do things for us it is a natural unspiritual kind of wisdom that says you need to look out for you first you need to do whatever it is uh, that makes you feel better or puts you in a better position, this kind of wisdom comes naturally to us. We are naturally sinful. We are naturally selfish and jealous of others. We don't naturally want to be unselfish. We don't want to naturally rejoice for others when God has blessed them in different ways that they've, that he has blessed us. That does not come naturally to us. So this earthly wisdom is earthly and is natural and the last part is demonic demonic jesus called peter satan right he said get behind me satan the, the, what happened in that moment was was peter jesus was explaining to peter that what needs to happen to jesus life that he is going to be tried and then uh, scourged and crucified, he's going to be killed. All those things have to happen, have to be fulfilled. And Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of doing it. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for your interests are in that of man and not that of God's. And that's what this means by earthly or worldly wisdom is demonic. It is just against the will of God. That those who live their lives against the will of God are on the very same side as Satan and demons themselves. That as the angels rebelled against God and were kicked out of heaven and are condemned to eternity uh, to be thrown in the lake and fire for eternal torment and punishment, so is every person that does not place their faith in Christ. This is a difficult truth. If you are like me growing up, uh, I, I always used to think that there were people who I thought would make great Christians. If they only received Christ, they would make such an impact for the kingdom of God. If they only received Christ, they were they would be such a great example of what a Christian should be. And I was so deceived in thinking that because I didn't have this understanding of what true conversion was. That no matter how good a person's life looks like on the outside, without Christ, there are their intentions, everything else, are completely demonic. They're not for the will of God. They are for themselves. Whether how good they may seem on the outside, they are demonic in the sense that their will is not for that of the will of God. And so no matter how good we might think they are, if they were to receive Christ, their life would still be completely transformed. Because they are still that far off, that separated from God's glory. So I, I kind of want to—I uh, encourage us to to kind of put this notion away that we think that we think that certain people would make great Christians and certain people would make poor Christians, because God has chosen the foolish to be wise and the wise to be foolish. So we have to be really careful in in that natural sense of thinking. Like if they just receive Christ, they—I could see them serving a music ministry. They could be a future pastor. They could serve in a children's ministry. All these things. That is true for every person. Because God is in business of changing our hearts completely around. Those who you think would not make great, great Christians, well, throughout biblical history, they've made great Christians. This kind of wisdom from that is earthly is demonic. So scripture says in Romans 5 that we were enemies to God before we were reconciled to him that we were literally enemies of God. There was no peace that existed between us and God before we placed faith in Christ. And through Christ, we are then reconciled to God. That means that there was no peace between you and God or me and God before I placed my faith in him. That means I was demonic in nature. I was sinful in nature. I was earthly. I was following all my natural desires. And I was on the same side of of history as that of Satan and demons. But when I was reconciled to God through Christ, through faith in Christ, I am no, I'm no longer an enemy of God. But as Abraham was called, I'm now a friend of God. In Ephesians 2, chapter 3, th- there's another section that talks about how we were children of wrath. So if you're taking notes, that would be another passage to, to reference to, to study later. There's a few examples in our modern society that even many Christians might look to for wisdom or even for knowledge. Uh, One of them was uh, Stephen Hawking who passed away, Uh, an astrophysicist, uh, well-renowned around the world for things that he has done in science and the names of science. He was also a professing atheist. We have... Motivational speakers who are, who are known around the world—Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins—is probably the biggest one. If you go to their websites, their things say things like, their, their websites will say things like, "Transform your life." Zig Ziglar says right on the front of his website, "says You can have everything in life you want if you will just help enough other people to get what they want." You see the selfishness in that. You can get everything you want as long as you help enough other people to get what they want. So they're trying to mix this idea of, well, care for other people, that's important too. But in the end, guess what you get? You get what you want. So in the end, it's still selfish driven. Many people's lives are changed by these motivational speakers. Many homeless people are now making a lot of money. Many people who are addicted to drugs are now not addicted anymore. Many people who come from uh, the very uh, lowest parts of society are now sitting pretty at the top of society. But yet the wisdom that they follow is still demonic. We have to have an understanding of that as Christians, that we are not to fall into the trap of, if these things help me get what I want, I could have this and my faith in Christ. It does not work that way. There are secular organizations that do a lot of good things for the world. Feed the hungry, give clean water to other nations, uh, provide for the poor, provide for uh, for the homeless. All these kinds of things are great things to do. But without faith in Christ, they are literally still demonic. They're still earthly. They're still natural. Why? It's because in the end, if you were to ask them if they're good people, they'd probably say yes. And he asks them why. And they would probably rattle off all the money that they've raised for these certain uh, awareness issues. they probably rattle off all the things that they've done for everyone else. And in the end, what it proves is that they are still relying on their self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ alone. And that is literally Demonic. To rely on your righteousness, thinking that you're good enough to get into heaven, that you're good enough to not need the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins, for your forgiveness, is ludicrous when we read the pages of Scripture. This could be a difficult thing to accept, that there are a lot of good-willed people out there. But without Christ, their wisdom is earthly, natural, and demonic. We have to be careful of what we consider wisdom, godly wisdom. Verse 16 now. All sin comes from jealousy or selfish desires. It says that wherever you find bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, there is disorder and every kind of evil thing. If you're a parent, you understand that there's times, if, if they have siblings, that there are times when you know if you left the room there will be disorder and every evil thing in that room. Why? Because selfishness and jealousy will then rule that room without without parental authority in there. That's why we have laws. It's not just kids that behave selfishly or, or jealously. It's, it's adults as well. We're no different. With, if we didn't have certain laws in place, we would be jealous and selfish, and those who be driving all of our decisions without laws to stop us from doing so. If there was a fear of getting fined or or going to jail for something, we would see a lot more selfish and jealous uh, activity going on just running rampant because there's nothing stopping them. Where there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is every evil thing. I asked a question. uh, I was asking myself a question. This isn't a crucial point of the text, but I was wondering if it's, and there's no reason to answer this now, but I was just kind of thinking to myself, is there a way to be jealous and not selfish, or a way to be selfish and not jealous, or do they always go hand in hand? know, I'm not looking for that question to be necessarily answered now, but I just thought I'd share what I was pondering this week with you guys. Let's move on to verse 17. Now we get to what wisdom is. Now James has said, Be careful to consider yourselves wise and understanding. And be careful, be careful of having selfishness or jealousy in your heart, otherwise, this will happen, or this is what it means. Now he's going into what godly wisdom is for those of us who want to seek godly wisdom. At the very beginning, James he starts off by saying, If you lack wisdom, Ask God, who gives to all understanding, generously. He gives to all generously and without reproach. So here we are. For those who seek this godly wisdom, this is what it looks like. But first, the wisdom from above is first pure. The, the, uh, this idea of it being pure is not, is not so much an example of godly wisdom, but it's actually more of the motive for seeking godly wisdom. The motive for seeking godly wisdom is the fact that it is pure. We're going to see that in in every instance of, in every description of godly wisdom in this text, we're going to see that it actually describes God himself. And that makes sense. If we want to be godly, then we're going to have God's characteristics. God's wisdom is going to reflect his self in each of his characteristics uh, that are shown in here. God is pure. God is holy. So if we seek God's wisdom, we should be wanting to seek it because we know that it is pure. It's straight from the source of knowledge. It's straight from the correct source. It's straight from God. It is holy. It is truth. Pure, the fact that wisdom is pure should be the very motive of why we want to seek godly wisdom. Because we want to be godly. We want to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. So if we want to do those things, we better be seeking that which is pure and that which is holy. The next thing he says, it is peaceable. It is then peaceable. God makes peace with us. We reread that in, in Romans 5. God is a peacemaker. He makes peace with those who, were, who were, there was no peace with before. Through Christ, he makes peace with us. So God is peaceable. He calls us to be peace-seeking and to peace be peacemaking. One of the Beatitudes is is Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker is that of a very, uh, one of the very characteristics that should describe a Christian. We're not to be uh, uh, argumentative. Even in 1 Peter 3.15, when we are confronted with objections to our faith, we are to respond with gentleness and reverence, reverence and respect. We are to be one to be uh, peaceful people. In Romans it says, "If, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men." So that, it, for the person who is described as being a peaceful person, a peacemaking person, they are displaying godly wisdom. We then have gentle, kind, or tolerant. Uh, this word "gentle" is different than the word "gentle" we used uh, the, that was used before in meekness. This kind of gentle is certainly is simply just kind and tolerant. You're patient with others. You're when when people wrong you, you are gentle with them. You're patient with them. You're kind. You're tolerant, as God is kind and gracious and tolerant with us, that we could see that that God's grace is displayed to us and His patience is displayed to us, simply by waiting as long as he did for us to receive him by faith, that he would have been completely just to kill us off right away. But he was patient in our sinfulness. Whatever age it is for you that you came to faith in Christ, God was patient with you in that he allowed you to live so that you might know him personally. That is God's gracious graciousness. That is God's patience shown towards you. That is God's tolerance and kindness shown towards you, his gentleness. We are to be patient with others. Proverbs 15.1 is a good example of how to be patient. It says, uh, there's a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's a good, that's a good idea of what gentleness is. The next is reasonable, open to reason. Uh, the, word mean, the word here means kind of open to reason or literally means obedient. It means this person's obedient. Or they're open to reason, or they're able to be persuaded to the truth. We see that there is obedience even within the Godhead. In Philippians 2, we see Jesus as the ultimate example of what that looks like, and what it means to be obedient to the Word of God, to the God's will. That as Philippians 2 is all about, do nothing out of selfish ambition but with humility in mind, regard others better than yourselves. It goes on to give Jesus as the ultimate example of that. So we even see obedience fully played out within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Jesus is our example of what it means to be obedient at all times to the will of God, to be that power under control. For Jesus to be fully man and fully God, he's still submitted to the Father's will. So we are to be reasonable obedient if you are wrong or you have sinned in an area you should be able to be persuaded to the truth we have this in in several teachings in scripture where jesus talks about what it means to confront a brother in sin and says if, if they believe you and they've listened to you you have won them over and by the way this is the end goal for any time we confront someone in sin is the end goal is to restore them spiritually not to judge or criticize them or break them down, but we see that in Scripture. Whenever you do confront someone in sin, you better have the intention of seeing them through the process of restoration. You don't get to just play a certain part of it. Well, I'm just going to be the one who points it out to you. I'll let someone else be the, do the hard stuff and actually work with you through it as you make changes to your lives. If we are to confront a brother or sister in sin, we have to be willing and ready to be involved in the whole process of seeing them restored and seeing the change that God does in their heart. So godly wisdom is reasonable. If you're wrong or you're in sin, you, you are reasonable in that you are allowing others to correct you. You're showing godly wisdom by being, being open to reason. After reasonable, he says, full of mercy and good fruits full of mercy. God is merciful. We see that his mercies are new every morning. He is rich in mercy towards us. And so quickly forgiving others should be another example of godly wisdom. Not holding on to things for a certain amount of time and then forgiving them, maybe after they apologize first or something, or you wait for them to do something, or you wait for them to make the first move. We are to be merciful. Recently in James, he says, Judgment is merciless to those who have shown no mercy. Because in that part of James, he's talking about he, even partiality is just as sinful as murder and adultery. And for, for those who have committed partiality, and, but they haven't committed these other sins that are worthy of death, they would think themselves better and they would treat others better because they didn't do certain things. And so that's where, this, where James comes to this point, is that you're not showing mercy to those who have committed different sins. You're showing partiality. So judgment is merciless to those who have shown no mercy. So godly wisdom is merciful. We should be reflecting the very mercy that we receive from God in the form of Jesus as, our sac- as the sacrifice for our sins. The next one is full of good fruits. You know, if, if, you're, if you're living out godly wisdom, you're going to be full of good fruits. Another way of putting this, is you're living obediently to God's word. In John 15, where Jesus says that uh, I am the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And he's talking about being fruitful and, pro- and bearing fruit as disciples of his. The whole context of that is obeying his commands. That's where we get at Easter time, on Monday Thursday, the Thursday of the Lord's Supper, and later when he was uh, uh, betrayed and arrested, we call that Monday Thursday because they received a new mandate from Jesus that night. A new command, love others as I have loved you. And so to live fruitfully, to be full of good fruits, just means that you're living obediently to God's word. When you read something in God's word, you're actually doing what it says. You're no longer making your decisions based on because what feels good to you or because it, it makes logical sense to you. You're making your decisions based on what God's word says. We're almost to the end now unwavering and without hypocrisy Un- unwavering means impartial you know god is impartial to us there's no jew nor greek nor slave nor free woman or man male or female there is none of that no no partiality shown in the kingdom of god it says that we are all co-heirs of christ that means that there is no special place in heaven for some people and another place for other people in heaven we are all co-heirs of christ there's no partiality shown by God amongst his children we are all children we are all brothers and sisters we are all saints but that's godly wisdom is when we are impartial with others as God is impartial with us we are not showing partiality with anyone else and that's another point that James brought up in James chapter 2 if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors so godly wisdom is impartial is unwavering. You're not making decisions back and forth based on what you feel or what you think is right or who you think deserves uh, special treatment. Your decisions are impartial that they are always going to be consistent with what the Word of God says, how the Word of God says to treat people, how the Word of God says to love our enemies, how the Word of God says to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. All those things should be impartial and unwavering because God's Word says so. And the last part is without hypocrisy. God is truth. God is sincere. God does not contradict himself. God is truth. He does not lie. Once again, further back in James, points out that while we should not blame God for tempting us, why? Because God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, right? God does not contradict himself. He will not do or be even be tempted to do the very things that which he hates. That's why it's illogical to blame God when we're tempted by something because God, God would not want us to do something that which he hates so much that it was worth sending his son to die on the cross for. So it makes no sense for God to want to tempt his children to sin because God hates sin so much. So godly wisdom is sincere. It is without hypocrisy. The difference between being a hypocrite and, and making mistakes is that there is repentance for those who make mistakes. For those who are hypocrites, there is no repentance, no remorse. Just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. I, I, a nickname for them could be the really jealous leaders uh, from this text. You know, let not there be jealousy and selfish ambition. Well, that's what the religious leaders were characterized by, their jealousy of Jesus. So instead of calling them religious leaders, he called them the really jealous leaders. Now we have the the very last part here. There's two end results of godly wisdom. It results in peaceful and righteous living, and it's also a continuous cycle throughout the Christian's life. It says here, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And In in the NASB, uh, they, they... the word, the seed, is not normally in, in the actual Greek text. But the, the thinking behind the, the translation for, for New American Standards, they, they want to emphasize this idea of self-duplication. Mm-hmm. This is a harvest that is year-round, that continues to produce more and more. Now, there's a seed that is sown, a seed fruit that grows out of it, someone's sowing it, and then someone's sowing the seed over again. That's what should describe godly wisdom. That's what comes out of godly wisdom, is that those who persevere in their faith are going to continue in godly wisdom, and it will self-duplicate. It will continue to produce righteousness. It will continue to produce good good works. So all in all in this passage, what I want us to understand is godly wisdom is not taught without being first demonstrated. Let not many of you become teachers, who is really wise among you in understanding? Let them show by their daily living, through their deeds and their gentleness of wisdom. So godly wisdom is not defined by those who teach, but is defined by how we live. No, one cannot properly teach godly wisdom without first demonstrating it and living it out. Because if they did, they would be a hypocrite. They would be considered a liar. They would be considered deceiving themselves and lying against the truth. So true godly wisdom cannot be taught without first being demonstrated. Let's close in prayer and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, humble us. Make us peaceful and gentle and reasonable when we're wrong. Help us to be full of mercy and good fruits. Help us to be unwavering in our decisions, to be impartial towards others. Help us to be repentant of when we're wrong. Use others, use brothers and sisters in Christ. Use your spirit to expose the sin in us so that we might not be hypocrites, but that we will be repentant sinners who are saved by your grace through faith in Christ. Prepare our hearts for for the table set before us as we reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What took place before the resurrection that we just celebrated last week was the dark and gloomy night of when Jesus gave his life, of when he suffered on the cross and died for the forgiveness of sins, but then, of course rising again on the third day, just as he said, proving that he is God, proving that he is the truth, he is the way and the life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.